Welcome to the Alcohol Rethink Podcast with me, your host, Patrick Fox. This podcast is for the guys out there who question the role that alcohol plays in their lives, men who want to stop drinking and don't know where to go or how to start. We're going to cover all of that and more. Let's go. Hi guys and welcome to episode 72 of the Alcohol Rethink Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a pretty awesome guest. He is a coach. He actually coached me when I was kind of starting out in my journey. So I'm really excited to have him on because he gave me some really good words of wisdom back in my journey. And I'll I'll share them with him shortly because he's perhaps wondering what I'm talking about. (laughs) He is a burnout coach. He's had his own journey with alcohol and stopping drinking as well. He is also a colleague with me in another capacity. So really looking forward to getting stuck in. Welcome to the show, Dex. Thank you so much, Patrick. And likewise, I've really been looking forward to talking to you because actually we have a lot in common, but we haven't spoken very frequently and I haven't seen you for a while. So I'm really excited to be on the podcast with you, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Why has that not happened? (laughs) It matters not, but you're, you're here now, man, and I'm really keen to get insight and as we were just saying before the call like see some of the similarities that we have with the guys that we're working with because you work solely with men as well in your coaching business is that right yeah i work with professional men in burnout so alcohol and other forms of uh escape are pretty common in the client base that i work with as well so yeah i'll be interested to explore the common ground myself yeah Nice. All right, cool. So perhaps if we start with your journey to sobriety and then we'll kind of see where it goes from there and look at burnout and all those other things that we can get stuck into. I signed up for that, did I? Okay, well, um, so I gave up drinking maybe uh, maybe 10 or 12 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I've I've been quite an enthusiastic drinker my whole life because it was um, more fun than not for me. And also because I have a lot of social anxiety, which it covered up quite nicely. Um, But in the end, I think what was happening is I got the diminishing return, the law of diminishing returns. And um, it was actually, the drinking was actually increasing my anxiety instead of decreasing it towards the end. And it was starting to make me a bit sick and I was drinking a bit too much too often. And I saw this and I thought, no, that's not sustainable, is it? And it was making me miserable. It was making me miserable. So, yeah, and that's nothing, it's nothing to do with my burnout. It's My burnout was five years ago, and probably I gave up alcohol maybe 10, 12 years ago, so mm. not connected events. But I think nonetheless the same, there are probably some underlying problems that brought both things on. Yeah, and it's like that anxiety. I, I, maybe that's one of those things that, as guys, perhaps we don't relate to that we have anxiety sometimes. But you know, we're all human beings. Like if we all have it on some level, and it's one of those unhelpful myths out in the world around alcohol for sure that it helps with anxiety and all of those things. But actually, it just increases it because I recorded an episode on this last week right like when we withdraw from alcohol we start getting anxious about having alcohol and then of course like you just get into that horrible cycle of drinking to feel better and 
like that's how we become so dependent on it all right cool so you stopped drinking so then like what what did you notice when you stopped drinking right because then five seven years later you went into burnout so what happened there Well, I think first of all, when I when I stopped drinking, I had to do something with all the energy I had left over. Mm. I had a lot of nervous energy that I've been kind of dissipating by drinking. And then when I stopped drinking, I had a lot of nervous energy without anything to do with it. So <laughs> I had a midlife crisis and took up triathlon. And I went out training, oh, wow. you know, five, five o'clock every morning just for a couple of hours just to burn the burn all that nervous energy off me. And that Actually, it was quite good because that that was kind of wearing down the anxiety. I've always had a lot of anxiety. My dad had a lot of anxiety as well. Mm. And I think it's, and this is where I think there's some parallel, like for me, between drinking and burnout, although they're different phenomena, I'm a type A personality. I'm a go-hard kind of person. You know, I'm a high achiever. I always want to give it more. And I think I drank a bit to slow me down. And I think when I lost that break, it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a shock, actually. Because <laughs> I used to be a bit, when I was drinking, I used to be a bit tired when I got up in the morning. Mm-hmm. But when you stop drinking, you're not tired. Tired's a little bit of a difficult state to get to. I was more wired, I think, then. And I think that, that type A anxiety and perfectionism and being very, very driven and going hard all the time, it's a bit more of a challenge to control if you're not buffering with something. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, that was a bit of a handbrake. So I guess, I mean, burnout to me was just another expression of dissatisfaction bystanders disappointing myself not really being the quite the person that I could approve of completely so I think the disinhibition for me of alcohol was I liked myself more when I was drinking I was much happier about who I was when I was drinking I think there's in burnout there's there's always this quest Quest to be perfect, to be accepted, to be approved of, to be acceptable, really, yeah. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think, yeah, this, it really is kind of a similar driver. It didn't surprise me, particularly that I ended up in burnout, although it took a long time to get there. Yeah, it's almost like you stop drinking and then you and to, you were drinking to slow down. And then when you stop drinking, you kind of like hit fast forward, right? Like doing the triathlons and like getting yourself stuck into to work as well. So what tell me about the experience of, of burnout for yourself? Like what were the early warning signs? What was the experience like in itself? Well, that was quite anxiety driven because I was I worked in software development and team leadership and product development and stuff like that. And um and I loved it to pieces, but I think, and this probably came to the fore after I stopped drinking, I, I stopped really feeling like I was killing it, you know? Mm. I was always super, super successful before that, and it was always so effortless for me. I don't know, I just had a, a natural gift for that kind of work, and, and I love to do it. But I think 
in the last number of years before I hit burnout, I stopped thinking I was really doing the quality of work that I, and getting the quality of results that I wanted. I started being disappointed and I started aggravating myself about that. And that got worse and worse over the, over the years. Then I went to work for an entrepreneur and they had a lot of lap, unsuccessful product launches, which I was somehow associated with. It wasn't my fault that the products failed to launch. It was their fault, but it, it felt like it was my fault. Then I started working a couple of startups and that was even worse. Notoriously, you know, the success rate in a startup is minuscule. Mm-hmm. And um, I just felt like I was losing my mojo there. My anxiety just didn't have a, it just, you know, I just didn't know what to do with it. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And I got more and more and more stressed and more and more and more anxious. And I wasn't sleeping very well. And then I didn't want to show up to work anymore. And then I felt ashamed of my performance. And it was all very unfamiliar territory for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I was working, my last job, I was working for a, a startup and the owner, it was his little baby, his little baby project, and he loved it, but he wanted all the glory. He wanted to go and network with very important people. He wanted to raise lots of money and go and get lots of certificates and lovely videos made. And, you know, he wanted all the cred, but he, he, he didn't want to publish the product because then <clears throat> he would find out whether people liked it or not. But my job was to publish the product. So we were kind of, <laughs> there was only two of us in the office most days, just at completely cross purposes. And I realized at one point I just wasn't going to be able to deliver on it. He was never going to let me get the product out the door and into the hands of the public. He wanted to just have lots of meetings with lots and lots of people and drag me into those. And, um, and I, I just couldn't really deal with that. That was just... It was a level of failure I couldn't assimilate at all. Mm-hmm. And so my anxiety just was skyrocketing. I was like, what am I, I going to do? I've only, got one, I've only got one job and I can't actually do it. I will never be able to do it. And I just, in the end, I left. I had a meeting with him on a Tuesday. And he said, oh, no, no, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that work here. Let's go and have another meeting with these guys over here. They're very important people. And I just said, you know what? I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm out. Because I suddenly realized, and maybe this is a bit of a parallel with drinking as well, like I realized drinking wasn't sustainable. After a certain point, it wasn't going to work out anymore for me. And I think I realized that in the stress in this job as well, that after this point, it wasn't going to work out. And this thought flashed through my mind that the stress was going to physically kill me if I didn't exit right then. Mm -hmm. So I did exit right then. I just said, I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm not coming back. (laughs) But it was too late. I'd already kind of peaked out on my stress and I um a couple of weeks later I had a massive heart attack. Jeez. And I had to spend six months convalescing from that. You don't really bounce back from that kind of heart attack. Mm-hmm. And then I spent six months convalescing and I was just thinking, oh, I'm just about getting up and about again now. And then I got hit by a car and had another three months in hospital. <laughs> So it was I mean, kind of a big sucks, deal. <laughs> yeah. It was a big deal. Life wanted to slow me down and it did slow me down. That's how it did it. Mm. I broke. In fact, when life wants to slow you down, when you get the tap on the shoulder, you really get it because I was, 
I had a lot of broken bones and I had to lie in a hospital bed for eight weeks without moving at all. I couldn't really sit up, definitely couldn't stand, couldn't do anything for myself. I just had to lay like a little sausage in despair for eight weeks. They're like, yeah, stitch that, see how you like that. Yeah, that's one way to be with yourself. <laughs> well, I think somehow, we, you know, life gives us what we need to grow, doesn't it? It gives us, it hands us a, a few cards, it deals us a few cards that we need to learn from. And I, apparently I'm not a very quick learner. So what was it like then being in that hospital bed for eight weeks, not being able to do anything essentially? Like what did what did you learn in that moment? Well, I learned a bit of humility, perhaps. I also learned to accept the care of others. Because type A, if you know too much about the definition of type A personality, but mm -hmm. we're the last people in the world to reach out for help. We're just these super autonomous types can fix everything all by ourselves. And I had always been that way. And once I was in this bed, I couldn't do anything. I, I just literally couldn't do anything. And people, I used to have to get people to come and help me every time I wanted to do any single thing. And I had some friends and they came and brought me a coffee each morning. And they sat and giggled and chatted. <laughs> And it was really hard for me because there was I, I was lying, I felt like a, a wounded dog by the side of the road. I just couldn't move. That was really tough for me to learn to rely on other people completely. Mm -hmm. It's been interesting, interesting journey. And with regards to your anxiety, like what did you notice about being in a hospital bed for eight weeks? You know what? I think that was where I made a little bit of peace with it. Mm. Not at first. I was in a lot of pain and on a lot of drugs at the beginning. But little by little, I just thought the only way, the only way I can deal with this, I was actually there for three months altogether, and I just thought the only way I can deal with this is to accept it. I can't keep fighting it for all that amount of time. I have to make my peace with it. And I think I managed to do that. I think I slowed down and I think I managed to make peace with not being able to do anything. And the anxiety was really not that prominent. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't have any responsibilities for one thing. <laughs> All I had to do was sit there and shut up and do some exercises and eat food. But yeah, I did manage to. That's where I started to get a bit of a handle on myself there, I think. Like, no, I really have to not be, not generate this amount of anxiety about things that don't matter. That would be pointless. Because for me, alcohol as well, it, it was a real escapist thing. Mm -hmm. You can just dissociate into this marvelous world of alcohol, go out, have a good time, have a laugh, be silly. It was like I had an alter ego, really. Everything there was about letting off steam. I used to go out on a Friday night just to let off steam. And when I was in this hospital bed, there was no possibility of letting off any kind of steam ever. I mean, it had to be quiet for the other people, for one thing. 
couldn't disturb the other patients and the staff. So I had to come to peace with it. I had to accept what was happening. And at what point did you realize that was burnout for you? <laughs> the point the point when I quit my job is when I knew it was burnout. Oh, so then you already knew at that stage that was burnout. I knew I was physic I knew that the physical stress had become so extreme that it was physically going to kill me. And I knew that that was what burnout looked like. Mm -hmm. The only thing I didn't know was how on earth to fix burnout. I didn't know anybody who had a cure for burnout. And actually, that's when I discovered the style of coaching that you and I have been trained in. Because mm -hmm. I started listening to the podcast and I started to realize there were some really practical things I could do to tame, you know, the tiger in my mind. And after a little while, I realized I could use some of the tools I learned there to fix the burnout in myself. And it was really centered on having a better relationship with myself. So I wonder, just for any of the guys who are listening and perhaps thinking like, keep talking about burnout, but I'm not entirely sure what that means. Like how, what's your kind of like definition of burnout? How, how would you describe it? So we kind of got an idea of what it was for you, but when you're working with others. Well, really, I think of it now this, it's, it's a chronic condition where type A personalities Super, super autonomous people, people who want to do everything by themselves, keep efforting their way through life's difficulties. Yeah. And living a lot in their fight or flight. As a consequence, the stress levels that they're under, the anxiety levels they're under about being able to perform adequately, keep their fight or flight stuck, jammed on, if you like. Mm -hmm. And that has a lot of wear and tear on the system. People don't digest food properly. They don't rest properly. They're not sleeping their whole ecosystem starts to degrade under the amount of pressure they're putting themselves under to perform. And that their only tool in the toolkit is to push harder when things go wrong. So they push and they push and they push and they push. They push themselves way across the red line into overwork, overwhelm, stress, anxiety, exhaustion, frustration. And also some mental capacity is diminished as well, problem-solving, memory and stuff, is, and cognitive skills diminish, and they just keep pushing even harder and harder and harder. So extreme exhaustion, like way, way off the charts exhaustion, overwork, feeling very, very burdened by everything, and also detaching. The final kind of resort of people who are in burnout is they withdraw from other people because they're so irritated all the time, angry all the time resentful, mm -hmm. frustrated, they tend to withdraw. And then they've, they've also got shame about their loss of performance. So shame, anxiety, stress, exhaustion, frustration just turns into a big ball of helpless rage and despair in the end. Yeah, it's quite a so cocktail. You're of listening emotions. to this. Pardon? I say it's quite a cocktail of emotions, right? It's a, yeah, it's a really strong freight train of emotions. But I think mm -hmm. the severe exhaustion is... I think how people know and it isn't physical exhaustion because you can't lie on the sofa at night and have a couple of beers and watch TV and zone out and feel better. That isn't restoring. It doesn't restore any energy. 
So I think of it as emotional exhaustion. Because I think burnout, really, it's a disease of disappointment and disconnection. Disappointment in the self and the performance of the self, disconnection from all that's good in life and from other people. Everybody um, who comes to me in burnout has people problems. They're having difficulty connecting with people. They're having difficulty putting up with people. They're very judgmental and angry and aggressive, usually, and withdrawn because of that. So if, if anybody's listening to this, or some of your guys maybe wonder if they're feeling burned out or not, mm-hmm. if you can hear yourself in any of the things that I described, then I would perk up and take notice because what I've discovered about burnout is type A personalities drive themselves into burnout. So if they have one episode of burnout, what do they do? They just keep driving because that's the only weapon they have against life yeah. to go harder. Yeah. And so anybody who's had one episode of burnout, if they're a very hard-driven, competitive, ambitious, uh, high standards, perfectionist kind of person, if they get into burnout once, they're going to get into burnout again. So the people who get burnout, what I've found is they're really, really high achievers and they've gone on this beautiful career path of exceptional talent and hard work, skills, experience. They've really been super achievers and they tend to have gone pretty fast up the ladder, but there comes a turning point where there's a problem they can't fix, a tipping point. And that's when they go over the top into burnout. And once you've gone into burnout, working harder and being hard-driven drives you further downhill, not up. And so burnout's a chronic condition that degenerates over time. So what I would encourage, you know, your listeners to do, yeah, work on the alcohol thing because that's really going to help resource and reconnect you to the possibility of goodness in life that you need but as well pay attention if you've got if you start to get chronic illness or have a lot of accidents or not sleeping uh immune conditions that type of thing pay attention it's your body trying to tell you to stop because i ignored my body for too long and had this whopping heart attack yeah (laughs) I was like, stop, are you kidding me? I'm going to keep running. Life just in the end is going to give you the red card. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is a shame. Yeah. It's a shame because those people are driving to something they can't achieve. And it's a shame because those people are, generally speaking, very wonderful human beings. And I find a lot of people who overdrink are really wonderful human beings as well. They're just a bit hurt. And drinking, over-drinking is, is a compensating mechanism for something else that's not working. Yeah, absolutely. But I like so often it's never never about the alcohol. It's like a, a we hear that phrase, like a crutch, a coping strategy. It's a way to try and deal with what's happening in their lives. And sometimes like we're not even conscious of, of there being something happening. We're just trying to get away yeah. from it, right? Like, and I think that's part of the problem, which is why I love coaching. <laughs> yeah, and I think coaching works really well with um, any kind of addictive process like alcohol. I think it's spectacular, but I think what we need to examine always if we're exhibiting some kind of behavior like that is what problem is it solving for us? Mm. What is it doing for us? Why do we do it? What's the payoff? Because there always is. You can call it a coping mechanism, but there's always some kind of payoff. I mean, I really did for most of my life enjoy drinking. Really did its job for me. 
for a long time. He gave me what I wanted. Yeah. So I think what yeah. we need, what we need to do is come home to that and really start investigating. Okay, what how how do I want to be? What problem is it solving? What's a better way to solve this problem? What do you think? What do you, what do you, what's the core of what you teach people there? Yeah, absolutely. But I like to people thinking that they're drinking for stress or overwhelm or kind of perhaps even anxiety, confidence, or just because they think that they're having it's it's fun, right? So it's really understanding, okay, so why are you feeling that way to begin with? Because once we can start understanding that, then we can start going, okay, yeah. so yeah. create some autonomy for yourself and make some new choices, new habits, new routines. But the, you know what it's like, Dex, like with our brains, we get so kind of efficient at what we're doing. Like we forget that there's other ways. Because like, yeah, but I've been doing it this long for ages so i'm just going to continue but but there was an expression you said at at the beginning right the law of diminishing returns and i absolutely love that because i think that's what happens with alcohol because it's not it's not always immediate is it but like over time like it really really does kind of like build up and 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 take its toll on your your mind your body and your kind of soul and your spirit as well for sure yeah, and I think I mean alcohol for me was running away a little bit. It was running away from the person I was. And I think that the power of reconnection is very, very important then in replacing something like alcohol with something that's more it's more about happiness than pleasure. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same with burnout. I mean, people, type, type A people have had difficulties with acceptance. They don't develop into these high-achieving, hard-driven perfectionists because they had an easy time being themselves and being accepted for who they were. And I was a very, very boisterous kid, hugely boisterous, loud and wild and tons of energy, and, and I had that suppressed in me. That was not acceptable. And I think alcohol allowed me to let it back out again when nobody was looking. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree, man. It's like, you know, when we drink, like we get to be that person who perhaps we want to be in our own lives, right? Where we can be silly and have fun. You know, sometimes it might go too far, sure, right? Because of the lowered inhibitions. But like there's part of us that wants to be expressed that it yeah. is being denied. And mm. I think growing up, like when we're young, like we, we do get so much conditioned. I was thinking about this the other day, like from the moment we're born, like we we are being sold on who we are supposed to be as a human being, right? Like what's right, what's wrong, you know, that you spoke about all of that uh, shame that we get as well. You know, like boys are boys, girls are girls, blue, pink, like all of that stuff, just like from the minute we're born and like we, we, we're kind of being yeah. told like this is who you are going to be in the world. And perhaps... And I don't know, maybe this is where, you know, we, you, you mentioned earlier about midlife crisis. Like perhaps this is where we're starting to like really start to question all of that stuff within ourselves because we kind of, well, I mean, what was it like or what are your thoughts on what I just said there? Well, I mean, if you're born an orange, you can't be an apple, can you? Yeah. It's very, very stressful. So for anybody who's been brought up saying these parts of you are okay, those parts are not okay, 
then there's going to be a schism, isn't there? And it's interesting, you just use the words, well, I, I couldn't be like this in my own life. It's almost kind of two people then, isn't it? Yeah. When I'm not drinking, I'm, the, I'm this good boy that I'm supposed to be, and then when I am drinking, I'm who I really am. As if it's two people, as if they can't be in the same body at the same time. Yeah. That's I, was, I, did, I, had a lot of, I had a lot of permission to be me withdrawn when I was a kid. Couldn't be this, couldn't be that. It was a big list. So I just kind of, I, I felt like I was a different person when I was drinking. And that that was nice. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, right? Like drinking can be fun and <laughs> all of the other stuff that I used to get up to. But it's, it, it's that like what point it became no longer fun. Right. It just became so monotonous and just like going through the motions with it all. And and that was when it really kind of highlighted to me like I've, something needs to change here, you know. I think the problem is if you're not being your complete, whole, authentic self, mm. then the friends you make when you're out partying and all of that don't have no idea who you are. They can't possibly make a relationship with you because they can't even see you. All they've got is this one-dimensional side of you. And then at home, there's another one-dimensional side of you. And you're not presenting your real self to the world, so it's very difficult to make any deep connections. Mm. Like when I stopped drinking, I abandoned all my drinking friends without really very much of a backward glance. Because I just suddenly thought, hmm. I don't have that much in common with them, do I? Yeah, it's it's the currency of the relationship, right? Like different people yeah. in your lives. Like, what's like that common denominator? And as you said, like sometimes when it's alcohol, without alcohol, what's that relationship like? Well, perhaps there really isn't much of one, <laughs> uh, and and that can feel hard, you know, sometimes for some people. So, well, I think we're starving for a deep relationship, but we're so disconnected from ourselves. We couldn't connect deeply even if we wanted to. So we're starving ourselves in our external relationship, but we're also starving ourselves internally by not being our own best friend, by not being very connected with ourselves and who we really are and what's really important to us. And we kind of toss that aside a little bit. Mm. So I certainly did. Yeah. So like how else can we connect with ourselves? Because some guys may be thinking, like, what on earth does that mean? So what does that journey or process look like or is, you know, and is that something you do with your guys as well, right? When you're working them through burnout, I can imagine. Absolutely. They've got a very inflamed inner critic going on there. There's a lot of self-hatred and self-abuse associated with burnout that can equally happen, you know, with drinking or drugs or any other thing really is this barrage of self-criticism. We need to be trained out of that. We need to be trained to, I think, have a much gentler, warmer, more compassionate relationship with ourselves because the relationship we have with ourselves is not different than the kinds of relationships we can maintain with other people. So if we're not very good at relationships, and I sure wasn't, <laughs> I've got to start with me. I've got to teach myself to be my own best friend first, to be kinder and gentler with myself, to give myself acceptance and approval and care. Air was another one that was difficult for me. 
I have to be all those things for myself. Because <clears throat> the way I teach people is if, you, if you're not filling the cup of your own relationship with yourself, then what have you got to give to other people? But when you do fill your own cup, it automatically overflows onto all the people around you and improves all your relationships at the same time. Because I think it's, just, it's all about disconnection at the end. Yeah, right. And as humans, you know, that is one of our primary functions is to be connected because, you know, from a very primitive level, it's all about survival, right? Like we want to connect. It's all about community. And it's so true, but I like that, that self-hatred, it, it almost becomes self-fulfilling, right? So I, I notice this with alcohol or any kind of, you know, like addiction, generally speaking, could be food, porn, sex, whatever, right? Is that yeah. when, when you're hating yourself, it's like you're trying to punish yourself. So you do the thing that keeps you disconnected with yourself, right? It just becomes so perpetuating. Well, as well, when we're trying to suppress our emotions, we're going to suppress all of them, aren't we? The fear, the rage, the disappointment. Everything we got going on is just, just going to be shoved down. So we're going to be, if we're drinking or drugging or whatever else we're doing, we're going to be very disconnected by definition from our own set of emotions. We're almost, yeah, living two people, I think. Mm. So it's a very expensive way to live. It's very physically you know, it's very bad for us. It's very bad for the functioning of our bodies and minds to be disconnected in that way, as you say, with our nervous system. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I, but that's one of the things I I notice sometimes is guys think, yeah, but I do like when they're drinking, they're like, yeah, but I do feel, I still feel happy, I still feel sad. But it's like, yeah, but like, what about all of that? Those other emotions when you're not drinking, right? Like, what about them? You know, how do we get you back in touch with those? And what is keeping you out of touch with them? Like, what do you think about anger and, 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 and rage and stuff? And I think, again, like conditioning that we can receive is that it's dangerous and we can't do it because people make that association like those things are something that you do versus something that you feel. Yeah, and it, particularly if you suppress anger and rage, by the time they do get to the surface, they can be a little bit aggressive and violent. Yeah. I think the trick is not to make a pressure cooker out of your own emotions, just to feel them as they come and go. Yeah. But that's a process of retraining. For the people who come to me, a lot of them don't even know what emotions they're having. They're just, they're just pissed off all the time, frustrated, annoyed with other people. Yeah, and it's... It, uh... I'm doing a lot of emotional work on myself at the minute. And like, so I'm when I work with all of my clients as well, right? Like, there's that kind of outer layer of emotion, like pissed off, frustrated, etc. But then so often, like, there's something underneath there's the, the sadness or the hurt or the grief, which is like being covered up by those kind of outer emotions. Yeah. And for somebody who's buffering, there's almost certainly going to be anxiety shame fear mm. don't want to drop the facade and have people see who you are and what's happening in your head right yeah exactly the ego would not like that <laughs> well particularly i so i deal with professional men in burnout so when they're at work they can't possibly give in to any of their emotions while they're in a workplace they can't you know they can't show signs of weakness and vulnerability in the workplace 
And I think culturally that's quite a taboo in general. For example, I work with a lot of physicians and uh, it's very, it's trained into them very early in the piece that their emotions are not to come to work with them. Mm. Which I think must be a spectacular feat for a lot of physicians, particularly women. We don't have any empathy and compassion for ourselves. We haven't really got it. We don't really give ourselves the time of day, I don't think. It's easier to stay shut down. What do you think? Yeah, we just become so reactive to ourselves, you know, oh, for fuck's sake, I can't believe that happened. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> and, then we're like, and, then we, and it's like you said, we go into that fix, fix, fix mode, like thinking like, oh, we just work yeah. our way through this all of the time. So yeah. like how, you know, how do you help your clients or what advice would you offer to guys out there to help them to kind of like slow it down, to start like connecting with themselves, but in terms of like with their emotions? Well, the, the way I work with people in burnout, and I would work with similarly with people who are buffering with whatever. Mm -hmm. it, it could be alcohol, it could be anything, it really is. The deficit that they've got that will help them find the strength to stop wanting to buffer so much is to be kinder and more compassionate towards themselves because they've got a war happening inside. And everything else is just too much to bear because the war is already going on inside them. So I teach them the skills to find the good in themselves, find themselves a, a decent and acceptable human being. I show them to themselves because we've got this kind of blinkers on. If we're being very self-critical, all we're seeing is the stuff we think we don't like about ourselves. We're not seeing any of the good stuff. That's long gone. We, we could be brilliant. We could be warm and generous and kind, but we won't notice any of that. So I just show people the other side of themselves. I show them their good qualities and I invite them to attend to those good qualities and start appreciating themselves, being kinder to themselves, noticing that they're a decent human mm. and a well-motivated people. Good hearts, right? I never met anybody who didn't have a good heart. But somebody who's really self-critical criticizing a lot won't notice that they've got a good heart they won't give themselves that credit and they won't notice the kind and generous things that they're doing for themselves and for other people at work whatever so i, I teach them to appreciate the actual human that they are as a good human worth loving and caring for mm -hmm. and yes i do work with men and that's exactly how i do it <laughs> And to be honest, once I introduce them to it, they're kind of relieved. Yeah, like right. they flourish like quickly. Yeah. It's permission. It's permission to care about themselves and to find themselves worthy. Mm. They've never really considered it. But once they do, like when I'm working with people, the most important thing with people in burnout is they're so exhausted and they're so angry. I got to help them get a bit of resources back, get them back to buoyancy a bit so they can start making better choices for themselves, maybe about eating and drinking and exercising and how they are around their families and stuff. It's just to be able to make those good choices, they've, they need to come back off the bottom. But I think doing this work of showing them, so, showing them that they're worthy and helping them connect with their own worthiness 
and find themselves worth the time of day is what brings them back to buoyancy the quickest. Like I see people recovering in the first three to four weeks work, start getting a, a sense of humor back and they do start behaving differently voluntarily mm-hmm. because they're getting internal nourishment now. They're not starving themselves to death and hoping it works out. Yeah, I love that. I remember one of the first coaches I worked with, he asked me a question just in like our consultation. He's like, what is some of your strengths? But I couldn't answer the question. <laughs> it was just like, wow. You know, like I couldn't answer that question. I couldn't I did, in myself. I couldn't say like what I liked or what I thought strongly about myself. So that was like really enlightening for me as well. And I kind of like what you were saying there is getting people back to themselves finding out like what they're good at you know we're talking about teachers right like i've got my stepdaughter i want it and she's 14 she's a teenager right like i do things and and then afterwards i'm like oh man why did i do it like that and like the the propensity is to like want to beat myself up for it right but it's remembering like even what i've done if I don't like it, it still came from good intentions. Like there was still like a, a reason why I was doing it. Perhaps it didn't go the way that I'd anticipated, but like I just use it as a learning experience rather than just like nailing myself for it. Like, okay, so next time mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got this. But I also think it's worth thinking about, okay, where did you learn to be this brutal? Mm. Who taught you to be this brutal? Who taught you that you are unacceptable? Well, it probably happened when you were quite young. That means there was some little kid just getting a little bit knocked about by life and learning that the way to behave in life, the pattern of being a good human, was to beat yourself up mercilessly all the time because you're an unworthy whatever, you know, however the story played out. A grateful little shit. I remember that being told that. (laughs) Yeah, so there's some little kid in an enormous amount of suffering trying to figure out how to be a good human and learning that the way to be a good human is to beat yourself up to within an inch of your life and then carrying that habit onwards. So it's good to notice that because what, what's really happening then is, okay, these things, the behaviours that I have aren't even mine. That's just how somebody taught me to behave. And I just did it because I was a kid and I didn't know any different. But the kid didn't enjoy it. So why don't I just give some of that stuff back and work out, work out another way? Mm, yeah i love that that kid's still suffering in there someplace yeah i really really like that start being curious about those things in our past and also how we can start being kinder to ourselves as a result right and even like how do we stand up to that that voice that one that wants to criticize and beat ourselves up right and say like you wouldn't accept it if somebody else was speaking to you like that probably you said no you can't say that that's out of order right like that hurts me so yeah kind of like stand up to that that voice as well mm. all right dex also, amazing like, sorry go on i'm gone no no, no. no, no whatever you got to say one last thing because what you mentioned earlier on as well is good intention so mm. that voice in your head is actually trying to protect you it has a good intention the method is terrible misguided but the good intention is there so i don't try yeah. and make war with yeah. my voice mm. I try and get on the same side with it. Interesting. Nice. All right, Dex, I have a final question for you before we wrap up this interview. 
And that is, what is, what does it mean to be radically human for you? That's just a small question then. <laughs> I think being radically human is being as authentic as possible, being as, being as much the person you really and truly are as you possibly can. Coming home to yourself, mm. not apologizing for being the human you were born to be. I think that's how I see it. And I, I must admit, I found that a bit of a life's work <laughs> in my case. How about you? Yeah, what do you yeah think? I mean, yeah, yeah. I've shared this many times because, and it changes every time, to be honest. But being radically human for me is about being, as you say, like being able to express yourself, being able to learn about yourself, like having that full emotional experience and it's hard sometimes right like because sometimes you're gonna have to say the thing that you don't want to say or make the decision that you don't want to make but for me that's what being radically human is it's about like owning your amazingness like your awesomeness your your worthiness right like all of those things so i think that's what it takes to be radically human i think it is a courageous act yeah for many of us Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it goes against so many of those social expectations and conditioning that we've been speaking about throughout this call. So, yeah. Yeah, but you get human. so much power mm. from it. We really do. And it's amazing. And and as you said, right, it's like that when you, the cup overflows, like, but that power we have from owning our, our, our humanness actually helps everybody else right like it's not taking anything away and i think so often we think well if i do if i'm just showing up for myself it's that the detriment to other people but actually it's the opposite yeah i would agree never never detrimental to anybody yeah awesome all right amazing thank you so much dex i'd love for you to just quickly share where guys can get in touch with you where they can find out more about what you do Oh, sure. Right. Thanks. Uh, well, it's just at dexrandall.com. D-E-X-R-A-N-D-A-L-L.com. Amazing. Nice and simple. There My for podcast you guys. is there. All right. Perfect. All right. Thanks again, Dex. Thanks, guys, for listening. And I'll see you all again soon. Take care and bye-bye. Imagine six months from now, you no longer had a desire to drink. No more thinking about drinking. No more fear about what you're going to do without it. That's exactly what my program offers. No more fear, no more blame, no more doubt. If you're interested in working with me, visit patrickjfox.com or book a consult using the link in the show notes. Until next time, bye-bye.